Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. You're on Team Human, conscious intervention in the machine. We are taking back the controls, not to restore order, but to promote chaos. Unpredictable human creativity is not the problem, but the solution. Join the party, find the others, throw off the yoke of surveillance and manipulation, and celebrate the quirky, anomalous behaviors and approaches that make real people so much more than robots, algorithms, or consumer profiles. You are not a number, you are a human being. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, Shareable.net's Neil Garenflow. When you move into a kind of a commons-oriented urban economy, you start to also measure different things. For instance, maybe you look at the quality and character of relationships, you look at the vibrancy of civic culture. Neil will be bringing us some of the most important ideas and actionable steps from Shareable's new book, Sharing Cities, Activating the Urban Commons. I do believe we are experiencing a renaissance of the city right now. I know I've spoken a lot about the shift in our economy from a, a growth-based economy to a flow-based economy. And cities are really crucial in maintaining what it is that I mean by, by flow, which is the circulation of money between people. You know, I've, I've spoken before and you all, you all, probably know at this point about the the way that our current uh, large mega corporations and digital companies in particular really depend on disconnecting their business models from the values of people and places and emphasizing capital instead you know there's three factors of production land labor 
and capital. And capital is the only one that scales. It's abstract. It's numbers. Land and labor, it's like real places with real topsoil. That gets depleted. People, they need health insurance and they whine and they need food. You know, corporations are abstract and generic and global and they want to just keep growing. And as we've discussed, corporations were born really in that moment when the Renaissance happened, that moment when we shifted from a medieval peer-to-peer kind of shareware-like society to empires, to these giant colonial nation-states that were going to now go and conquer the world. But what was really going on on the ground was we were moving from what used to be known as city-states to nation-states, from cities to empires. In the old, old days, even Rome (laughs) was kind of a city-state that turned into an empire. Um, But the cities were the, the political and economic hubs, and they were circulatory in that people came to the the marketplace and traded what they had. Once cities became empires or subject to empires, then it was not about circulating value amongst the people in your city. It was about going to some other continent, enslaving people, extracting their resources, and then selling them back to the people in the cities. You know, they they ran out of room eventually. We ran out of other countries. So that's why digital technology took hold. There were no more places to expand to, so we decided to expand instead right into people through digital technology, into human time, you know, and extract our our time, our attention, our labor. And now people like me and people on on Team Human, we're looking at how do we have a new renaissance to sort of overturn that last one? How do we have a renaissance where we can retrieve all of the valuable things about land, about labor, and ultimately about the city? You know, the city is the the largest organic cluster of human beings. A nation state is artificial. Nation states are abstract. They were invented. The city happened organically. And as a large, organic, circulatory extension of human culture, cities are where you can do what would be called bounded investment, where you can invest in the restaurant on your street, which makes your street better and makes your tax base go up and makes your real estate values go up. The city is where you can do real capital investment of the sort that changes the world in which you live rather than capital investment in some strange, you know, foreign resource company that you don't even know what it's doing, who it's enslaving, what pollution it's creating. It's where you can operate a business at scale, meaning real scale, not scaling up infinitely, but in human scale. Because growth, that infinite economic growth, really only serves lenders. You know, that's the the only group that benefits from an economy that wants to grow are the people that are lending money and getting paid back on that growth. Real people and places, they're served through circulation. 
So the city, the human-scaled, non-abstract city, actually, even though you go to New York, you go to Los Angeles, you look up and you say, oh my gosh, it's so big. It's big in human terms. You can't look at the Wall Street Journal and see the scale because that scale is infinite. The city is as big as it gets. That's it. That's maxing out because it's so big, but you can still affect it with your fingers. You can still affect it with the the museums and the music and the contact and the conversations that you have. The object of the game here, I think, is to restore human civilization to human scale. And the easiest way to think of that, the easiest place to start, the place where that's already happening and really just needs to be encouraged is the human city. That's why I'm so happy to have as our guest today, Neil Gorenflow of shareable.net, who's just produced the new book, Sharing Cities, Activating the Urban Commons. I'm Richard Heinberg, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Kira Gant, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Pia Mancini from Open Collective, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Sylvia Zier, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Richard D. Bartlett, and I'm on Team Human. Thanks so much for being on Team Human. I, you've been a, a longtime supporter of the show, and our, our ability to that you host our broadcast on Shareable is uh, no small favor to us in extending our community. So, so thank you for that. Uh, yeah, you're welcome. And you know, it's the least we can do when trying to be like a good member of Team Human. Not only the podcast, but the 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 whole collective, right? Yeah, I mean, and it really goes to one of the main points of your book, which is that there are a lot of uh, resources that, uh, you know, most of us think of as market resources that are actually uh, much more suitable for uh, maintenance through sort of commons governance. Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, our new book, Sharing Cities, Activating the Urban Commons, it does try to redefine the city in in a sense and say that a city is not just a marketplace, it's a commons, it's a place that people share where they build their lives together, and that it can be run, you know, democratically and cooperatively, almost all of it. And, and uh, you know, it tries to raise people's awareness of, like, another way to do things that is kind of, it's team human way to do things. Right. I mean, why do you think, why do you think the city is so much better situated to promote these commons ideas than, say, a nation-state is? Uh, because it's it's the largest scale where, where people meet face-to-face and experience life, you know, tangibly. And it's where density and diversity make it possible to an easy and pleasurable to meet up and also share resources and govern their neighborhoods. And, and also access to the resources that they need. And, that, and that's what the book is really about. You know, it has 11 chapters, energy, housing, water, mobility, work, demonstrating that a sort of local, democratic, cooperative economy in the city is, is fully possible. Almost everything that cities, that happen in cities can be done on a cooperative basis. Right, so I guess unless you're a you know a tiny city like Vatican City or Monte Carlo or something, yeah, um, then 
you know, if you're a nation state, then you're necessarily kind of abstract. I mean, it's part of what the Trump people are all upset about. Oh, federal government is necessarily corrupt. But to to their credit, what they're saying is the federal government, you're not here. You're not in our town. You're not in our city. You don't know what our experience is. Yeah, exactly. Well, the comments is the sort of political economy that undergirds this idea of sharing cities, right? And the commons, Nobel laureate Eleanor Ostrom, she won the award because her work showed that often commons management, local democratic control of a resource, was more effective than private business or government control because it's the people who live there who know the circumstances, their own circumstances, and the uh, circumstances of their community, they're in the best position to make decisions about how a resource is managed. You know, Eleanor Ostrom, what she studied was rural commons like forests and fisheries, farmland, grazing land, that kind of thing. And now what scholars and activists are doing are taking those ideas and reinterpreting them for the city, right? Our book is a kind of a step in that direction and a very tangible one with with case studies and model policies, like stuff you can take and act on, a very practical. Right. Well, that's what I like about Shareable as a whole, and this book in particular, is, you know, most of us argue almost on theoretical or rhetorical grounds. Here's why this would be better. But we're still talking in, in the hypothetical or in the abstract. And the easy argument against that is always, well, I was there and it didn't work, and I was on a kibbutz in Israel and it didn't work. What Shareable does is, in every article, in every book, you just lay out example after example, case study after case study, saying, here's how it worked, here's how it worked here, here's how it worked there, that there's an almost uh, a cumulative effect to this rhetorical device that makes it very hard to argue against. Yeah, we've been doing this since like 2009, like publishing daily on how people are solving their problems together in their own local communities. And I think it really, to go back to what you were saying about this idea of the nation state and national politics, you know, I think this book comes at an important moment where people are starting to wake up to the limitations of, of these abstract arguments and the polarization that results and coming back to thinking about their local community and their neighbors and thinking about common needs and how they can, can be met together and thinking on the basis of solutions instead of buying into like very divisive ideologically driven, you know, national politics. The thing about a city is it's very practical. You know, the, the trash has to be taken out and the trains have to run on time. And this is where we have to manage our lives together. And I think it's, you know, I think this offers a, another pathway to channel our energy. Right. I mean, the, the case studies also, I mean, and you state this right, right before you go into all of them, you know, that you're trying to undermine this myth that, you know, that there's no alternative to capitalism, which I didn't know is, you know, called Tina, you know, that <laughs> yeah. there is no alternative, you know, and contrast it with this idea of Tama, you know, that there are many alternatives uh, in in the commons world. Yeah. And, and, and I think that's part of what we want to do also is not say like, and Ellen Ostrom would agree with us and said this, you know, we don't live in a simple world anymore if, if the world was ever simple. And there is no one solution. You know, we don't live in a black and white world. And uh, the best things take time and patience and civility and working with one another. 
and the you know and the payoff comes you know and and i think that's what's partly behind the book and the wider context in which it emerges is a kind of civic revival that's i i see starting to bubble up in lots of different places uh, around the world so you know for people who aren't really familiar with the notion of the commons, what's sort of the easy way to define or that you found anyway to define commons for people? Yeah, well, it's, it's, um, there's three basic pieces of it. There is first a resource that's shared and, you know, in the classic sense, that's forestries, fisheries and grazing land and so forth. And, but more recently, the attention has shifted also to things like open source software and even enterprises that can be managed as a commons and also things in cities like public squares and cultural assets. And so, OK, so you have something that that's shared and needs um, care and maintenance. And then the two other aspects are the users, the people that enjoy or have access to that resource. And then the third thing is the governance system, is a system that the people work out together, a democratic process that governs access and use of that resource, and also its care and maintenance for the long term. And and since, you know, it's the local folks who are in charge of this resource, they think in long term, you know, they're not thinking with mar- the market mentality or exchange mentality, you know, like how we can build this resource and monetize it. They're thinking about it. Well, we want to steward this because we rely on it and we love it. We want it to be around and we want to enjoy it into the future and for our children and their children to enjoy it into the future. So it's easy to think about when, you, like, uh, uh, you think of, like, biblical times, and there's a well in the middle of some small, you know, caveman village, and, okay, we're going to make rules about the well in order to keep it maintained and keep enough water. A family's only allowed to take out 20 buckets of water a day, and you're not allowed to pee in it because that's bad for everybody. And, you know, if you want to feed your horses or something, you got to use the stream over there, not the well. And then if somebody breaks the rules, you know, the big guy whacks them with the club or they don't let him use the well anymore. And it makes sense. Uh, In an urban setting, it's much harder to kind of envision this happening with uh, the kinds of resources that that cities need. So what's like the what's your your go to example right now of sort of a counterintuitive resource that has become operated as a commons in a real urban place today. Yeah, a really cool example is um, this cultural center, CCM, in, uh, in Argentina, Buenos Aires. And great story. It's in the book. But it was founded almost 10 years ago. It was founded after this tragic nightclub fire where a couple hundred people died. It was very tragic. The city clamped down on all of these sort of uh, on the margins kind of um, cultural centers, maybe not operating a full compliance regulations and so forth. Um, this really put a clamp on the cultural life in the city. And what CCM did was they innovated a safe, successful, profitable cultural center model where beer sales, food sales, and music subsidize all the other arts like poetry and film and painting and dance. This model was successful. They were profitable. It was also operated as a, as a cooperative, so they worker-owned. And um, what they did was they taught other cultural centers how to operate this way. In a span of like five years, it went from about 100 
cultural centers to 800 cultural centers, and then they started to cooperate, right? They did multi-location festivals together, they started buying supplies together, and they started lobbying the city for arts-friendly, culture-friendly regulation. And so they went from this, they rose from the fire to create an entire ecosystem that manages uh, the local culture and artistic production as, as a commons. And they can do it in a distributed fashion. It's democratic and spread among many entities, but it's but they're also connected and cooperating. And and I think that's really the model that we have to really look at in Grok, you know, to move from this, you know, it's a kind of polycentric model. And our economy is operated on a kind of monocentric, you know, model where there's these huge centers of power and wealth like Silicon Valley and Wall Street. And, and our economy needs to be shaped like this ecosystem for art where, that CCM helped catalyze in, in Buenos Aires that is distributed, democratic, but cooperating and cooperating on a global scale. Right. I mean, it always feels easy to, to imagine, you know, Ithaca or Bard College or Berkeley doing some cooperative arts or, you know, we're going to have a... a meditation co-op <laughs> or a mas- you know right. a massage commons it's always you know it's great you know so you're gonna do shareware for your crystal therapy but you know when it comes down to water and grain and uh the stuff that you actually need to survive it feels yeah, like, like energy yeah it feels like a nestle's or a Mo- exxon mobil is always going to come in there and you know suck uh, suck the potential sort of economic sharing out of that situation. I mean, where are you finding sort of commons-based activity that's going right up against the sorts of things that markets usually uh, control? Yeah, well, there's uh, two two really great examples in, in Germany. One in Hamburg, where the citizens voted and bu- to buy back the privately owned energy utility, the le- electric utility, and now we're going to start operating it as a commons. And then also the city of Munich, instead of like using Microsoft Office and all Microsoft products for the IT infrastructure in the city government, they developed their own open source, you know, a software system based on Linux. And even though, uh, like, Steve Ballmer came out and tried to sell them or offering this huge discount, they said, no, no, thank you. We want to develop our own uh, system here in Munich. Right. And they'd even rather do, even though it's going to be more expensive in the short term, they realize that, you know, it's just like the drug dealer coming, saying, oh, well, we'll give you all this stuff for free right now. You know, it's like, yeah, just to get you hooked and, and you know, so entrenched in their, in their operating system that you can't get yourself out again. Yeah, exactly. Like they're you're locked in, you know. That's kind of the terminology, and you know, this is, uh, offers a, a different path. That it's more about freedom and control for the people. Mm-hmm. Simple enough. I mean, and then you know, in closer to home, at least to me, I mean, you've got the the case study on 596 acres, which is in Brooklyn. Yeah. Right, I mean, which yeah, is yeah. always encouraging because we always think that Brooklyn or Manhattan, well, it can't happen here, um, but apparently it can, right? Yeah, absolutely. You asked about like going right up against the, you know, the system. I mean, housing is the biggest, one of the biggest challenges in cities today, but there are incredible solutions. You know, 596 is one. 
Lambeth and and uh, and UK and London, they did this thing, and other cities are doing it too. It's a ghost tax. So if you're just sitting on residential real estate, just kind of parking your money there, they double the tax, or the tax goes way up. And some cities, the occupancy is like 20 or 30 percent. While there's like a kind of quote unquote housing crisis or a housing shortage, there's you know land trusts and limited equity uh, cooperative housing, which are ways for cities and also private groups um, to set up permanently affordable housing. So, you know, going beyond just like this idea of like, let's build some 20% of this development is going to be under market rate and who knows what happens after that. This makes it so the, the property is, of, the real estate is affordable in perpetuity, right? So this is part of the reason why we wrote this book is that these huge problems that dominate the headlines we're like banging our head on the wall and it's like, they no, how come no one is talking about X or how come no one's talking about Y? There are the solutions. They are here. You know, it, people have to be open to new ideas and new ways of doing things. Right. So it's almost more a, uh, a behavioral change or a mindset change, you know, rather than working out the details. That's the, that's the bizarre thing about this, that people think, oh, these are insurmountable odds. How are we going to orchestrate the logistics for the 8 billion people. And it's like, no, we've got that covered. You know, it, yeah, <laughs> it's <yeah>. really... <laughs> so then it's a matter almost of convincing. I mean, and you and I are, are you know, uh, uh, teammates in this. And, you know, you're sort of doing it from the nonfiction evidentiary side of here's... You try this, try this, or don't like those, try that, try that. You know, they did it over here and it worked, and they did it over there and it worked. You know, so almost as if you know, if people can be exposed to enough examples of people who look and feel like them. In other words, not, oh, they're wealthier than us, or, oh, they're more, they're in Norway, which doesn't count right. just <laughs> because it's Norway. Or they're a cult uh, or something like that, you know? <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. But, you know, you look at something like uh, uh, like the example of the League of Urban Canners. Mm-hmm. Say, I don't know if you remember that one. It's a very simple do-it-yourself food movement commons or co-op, I guess. Yeah, yeah. This is the, you know, do-it-ourselves kind of economy, you know, handbook. Mm-hmm. And so the solutions are there in our opinion. Um, and, and what we do is a kind of a form of solutions journalism that we go out and report on things that are working and look at the pros and cons of each one. You know, we want people to learn about the solutions out there and take them and adapt them for their own community. This kind of catalog of solutions is out there in our book, Sharing Cities, Activating the Common, but also on shareable.net. And they're ready to be sort of replicated and scaled up collectively. Not scaled up in the Silicon Valley sense, but a, a system that would scale it up in a democratic and distributed fashion. And, you know, what's really interesting is how co-ops are cooperating, right? So you have the Evergreen co-ops in, in Cleveland, as an example. We talk about that in the book. And this is a collection of co-ops that are tied to anchor institutions like universities and and hospitals who are sourcing now from these, these co-ops uh, like a green laundry and uh, and an organic farm, and there's more. These uh, co-ops are in low-income communities, often communities of color, and so are you know kind of creating a system. It's very strategic, and I think this is like we we have to move from just thinking about 
co-ops this this one model of operating a business to ecosystems of co-ops and how they can be scaled up and all the institutions that are needed that the new regulations the awareness the new culture and values the the financing that's required new laws yeah it's interesting i mean i've been talking to uh uh, credit unions lately and Mm -hmm. um a lot of them are competing against one another (laughs) yeah which is nuts right (laughs) right it makes it really hard though i mean it's interesting. I, I do love the tenet that if you're going to be a cooperative, you've got to be cooperating with other cooperatives. And that really could mean then just figuring out, well, who who's your territory and who's my territory? Or, you know, how, how could these two, you know, organizations support one another's work rather than you know, be fighting over uh, uh, the very same customers? Yeah, over the scraps, right? I mean, there's something like 6,000... Uh, credit unions in the United States, um, and together they make the fifth largest bank in the United States. So they're not small, but that's still collectively, but still that's they're a minority of that industry, and there's so much more to gain by working together. And they do work together. Um, also, there's they have their trade. There, I think there's two main trade associations. But in my, but I have the same kind of gut feeling too, is that they could be doing so much more. Uh, they have this these moments, you know, uh, where they. Uh, you know, I think it was during Occupy, like, uh, move your money. You know, there was that that kind of cultural moment was like, take your your money out of ban- out of private banks and into into credit unions. And I'm just wondering why that you know hasn't sustained and gone deeper. Um, yeah. And it, I mean, you know, part it just, of it, yeah, yeah, part of it is that they really don't understand what credit unions are. They see themselves as kind of non-profity banks mm-hmm. rather than, you know, as different from an extractive commercial bank as a a cooperative commons is from an extractive corporation. And also I would add too that they're actually super competitive in the marketplace. They just offer you know, much better rates, you know, if you're taking out a loan or if you have a savings account or a checking account, the interest that you would earn, less fees. These two things, what you said and I'm saying, they, they go together, you know. A credit union is not for, is not operated for shareholders, it's operated for the members, for the, the, the depositors, and also for the community, for the health of the community, the local community specifically, or the group of depositors that come together to form the, the credit union. I mean, sometimes you have to be willing to pay more or get less, you know, that the the bank gets its money cheaper than the credit union does. I mean, and in the long term, sure, there'll be less extraction. But in the short term, you might look at that rate is not going to be as good. If you're buying a CD or looking for a high interest savings account, it may not be as good as what you can get at the awful bank. But that dollar stays in your community. That dollar, you're going to see it again. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. you know, your the actual equations you have to use, the metrics you have to measure uh, to determine your wealth, are really different. I mean, and that's really the same with these uh, with these sort of urban commons that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. That the the GDP or GNP might be lower measured in certain ways when a town replaces its utility company with a solar energy commons, right? Yeah, I I mean, I think you start, when you move into a kind of a commons 
oriented urban economy, you start to also measure different things and, and different things become important. For instance, maybe you look at the quality and character of the relationships. You look at the vibrancy of civic culture. You look at uh, people's level of contentment and their sense of, of happiness and how they're getting meaning from their lives. In other words, you start looking at real wealth, right? The sort of pre-industrial definition of wealth, which is about uh, more oriented around health and well-being. Right. That's why, you know, I was uh, just surprised but but encouraged to see the uh, that soul. Uh-huh. I guess you wrote about this on the website, but then in the book at greater, at greater length, you know, the sole metropolitan government, you know, put out this ordinance on the promotion of sharing. Yeah, know? right? Which, who does that? Um, maybe could you explain what that what that ordinance did and why it's why uh, maybe it's the shape of things to come? Yeah, so what's really interesting there is that Mayor Park, who is the driver of this policy program, is a maverick, a political maverick. So he's an independent. He's not uh, attached to any of the major parties there. And he's a social entrepreneur and a sharing guy and human rights lawyer by trade, right? So he is part of this new like wave of civic development in, in South Korea, which is kind of trying to catch up with their economic development because they've like sort of catapulted from almost ashes after this, you know, it was, it was leveled in the Korean War and now is one of the most modern economies in the world. You know, he becomes mayor and there's a, a range of social problems that he's very aware of and which are pressing in Seoul and South Korea, things like waste and also social isolation. They, they have one of the highest suicide rates in the OECD in, in South Korea. And also there's you know some economic stagnation and high youth unemployment. These are not unfamiliar problems, uh, right? And he sees sharing as a way to address all of those, uh, a method that can address all of those at the same time, right? And so he... Back in 2012, started uh, his Sharing City Soul program, and it's a package of programs and policies that promote and are trying to mainstream sharing in a mega city of over 10 million people, right? And it's well resourced, well planned out. They have a strategic plan. They have a 60% innovation team behind it. They have also a, a local committee that oversees and guides it. So there's, in our opinion, it is a shape of things to come, especially the seriousness w- with which this is being pursued in terms of policy, in terms of investment, in terms of programs. So unlike me, you're much more open to the idea that that the state and business and the commons can be balanced. You know, I get all I get all uh-huh. angry and then just think we've got to go. Just got to get rid of all these people. Just do the right thing. Um, but you say, you know, right, right in the book, you say, you know, we at Shareable believe that the commons needs to be elevated to a dramatically higher level of importance in urban development, but not to the exclusion of the state and market. Instead, the three spheres of commons, state, and market must be put on a peer basis, harmonized, and managed to control the excesses and bring out the strengths of each. I mean, was that a debate to come up with that 
policy where there are people who are like, you know, you can't include the market in there? Um, or does everyone really feel that there's a way to somehow balance out these these three ways of doing things? Yeah, I mean, that 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 is a conclusion that was hard won o- over the life of shareable and fairly new like realization for me personally after years of traveling all over the world to see how how sharing is being implemented and new economy is being implemented and and I just saw this idea of like a parallel economy was just not possible there's no exit right it has to be carved out of the existing system it has to be negotiated into existence with what already is there mm-hmm. and it won't work also if you have both the government and business being enemies. There has to be some sort of of deal, right? Uh, some sort of new social contract that binds these three, three realms of value creation into a useful harmony. I think that's a very high bar. I'm, we're putting it out there as, I think, uh, one of the key challenges. Right. It feels like we have to. I mean, if we don't pull it off, then we end up with just one system as a kind of a, a post-apocalyptic, you know, uh, uh, administration. You know that that you you do have a state. A state's a nice big abstract thing, you know, and it. But it serves its purpose in terms of sort of long-term values and looking at certain uh, uh, certain large-scaled enterprises like interstate railway and things like that, that nation states are good for that, you know, and markets are great for, you know, peer to peer exchange and to establish the value of certain kinds of things. And commons though, are really what you need when anything is depletable. You know, it feels like if anything is fixed, like an aquifer, you're not going to solve that with a market because the aquifer is still going to disappear at that point. You know, the aquifer has to be managed by a commons because otherwise it goes away. Yeah. I mean, the the interesting thing is there's that famous Garrett Hardin uh, paper, you know, the tragedy of the commons. The key thing about that paper, though, is that what Hardin was describing was not a commons at all. He was more describing a market, right? Right. And, and a commons, if you had governance of that uh, by the people of that resource, then it wouldn't be exploited into a c- extinction. And that's often that, what happens in the marketplace. There is no governance for the long-term preservation of this or that asset, and it just gets completely depleted. Right. I mean, and uh, the where the common tragedy is slightly true is that the worse one person treats the common utility, the, the worse the next person's going to treat it. You know, if you go to a... Um, Go to a, a gas station bathroom. You know, if yeah. it's all nice and treated well and all, you're going to treat it well yourself. You're going to be able to sit down on the seat, do all the things you want to do. If it's a pit of gross stuff everywhere, whatever, <laughs> you know, you're not even going to touch the seat to raise it. You're just going to aim <laughs> and hope for the best, and you're going to make the bathroom worse right. kind of, as a result. And I feel like I that's just sort tiptoe of, out of there, right? Exactly. Just <laughs> out of there (laughs) but i feel like that's the way most people are looking at society at this point it's almost like yeah things are so bad we're just gonna you know we're just gonna uh, get through this thing and then and move on well first of all we're not swimming in this stuff yeah first of all i just love how you bring this really down to earth um (laughs) and and the, the other thing though is 
you, what you bring up is a really essential issue here, which is scale. You, you described a anonymous use of this public bathroom. So it's actually not a commons, but if everyone who was using that bathroom knew each other, then there would be much higher uh, accountability. And then over time, you develop and use you know, commons governance principles to ensure that this bathroom stays clean over the long term, right? <laughs> and then you don't have to like wear waders to go in there to do your business. Exactly. You know, and you put little signs, I guess. Please don't put paper towels in the toilet. <laughs> you know, please be considerate. You know, please wipe the sink. You know, like to say on the on the airplane, please consider wiping down the sink for the next next passenger. But it's hard right now. You know, it's hard. The, the more people think they're in it for themselves, the harder it is for them to understand. But I think the book makes a really good case for the idea that maintaining your comments is in your self-interest as well. Oh yeah, this um, this is about aligning self-interest with common interest, and and there I just think that there are very few things where these things can't be lined up, right? I mean, we are a social species. There is nothing that we can accomplish that we don't need others to make it happen. You know, it makes me it makes me think of the sort of sort of political situation and the breakdown of civility that we see here in the United States. I mean. Uh, part of the beauty of this book is it says, you know, yes, we are. Okay, we. I really worry that we can't that we can't solve the, any of our key issues if we can't even talk to each other or work together. But this book says, in many many places, people are um, solving their uh, can talk to each other and can solve their issues. You know, it makes me think of 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 uh, Bologna. Um, Bologna, Italy, I took this trip there. I've been there a few times now. And they have this a thousand year old like civic culture, starting with like the oldest university in the Western world, started by students coming together to form cooperatives to hire professors. And then they were uh, a self-governed city-state during the Middle Ages um, and into the Renaissance. And then, and more recently, 30% of the, their economy is cooperative and is also an ecosystem. All those uh, co-ops um, working together to stabilize the economy and, and, and also jobs in the area. And, you know, the point here is when cities and communities invest in civic culture and their social capital, this can have uh, – can be probably the best investment they can make and can last and have an effect that goes over centuries if they really focus on it. And I think it's something that we can do, certainly here in America, uh, without, in some ways, without regard to what's going on in national politics. In other words, the commons doesn't have to be uh, contextualized as some blue state progressive liberal thing. It's the way farmers manage you know, water. It's the way, you know, lumber people can manage timber and fishermen manage fish. You know, this is not uh, some necessarily lefty socialist thing to say, oh, here's a shared resource. How do we want to maintain it? Oh, uh, yeah, that's absolutely true is that this this kind of political economy has potentially appeal from both the left and right. Um, I think certainly the rural commons, they are, exist in a much more culturally conservative uh, context. And that's part of the reason, to go back to the introduction of the book, and what I say is, like, we don't want to be ideologically rigid and, and exclude anyone from this potential opportunity, from this 
alternative that uh, the problem with uh, this sort of ideology and the polarization that we see is like we you know we can't really solve our problems together and we stop thinking about what we have in common and how we can s- and meet those needs together right and to get, be really you know um, get away from ideology and get towards um, just thinking about solutions. Right. But if you've got a red stater saying, I want government out of my business, you can say, good, you know, then let's just manage it ourselves. You know, and that is really the first step. It's getting people to say, "Okay, don't worry about these giant institutions right now. This is your resource. These are your neighbors. Work it out. You know, and that's the beginning of re-socializing our society. Yeah, I mean, and and, you know, I used to... (laughs) Doug, I used to um, work when I was in graduate school at a uh, a cooperative telephone trade association. So I, I really did get this insight into rural America and its cooperative nature. It's conservative and cooperative. Um, that is the center of the cooperative universe or the cooperative economy in the United States. It's rural America, especially in the Midwest. And you've got telephone utilities and water utilities and electric utilities and farm cooperatives and also cooperatively run uh, factories that produce, you know, take grain and make pasta out of it, right? It's cooperatives stacked on top of cooperatives. You also have the ecosystem too. You've got the professional, the, the lawyers and the consultants and the accountants and the banks that all support cooperative business. So we have that reservoir to draw on and and apply to the rural context. Right. And then it's a matter really of, uh, it seems pretty easy to get from here to there. You know, if anything, I mean, it's part of what you've done. If you've turned the, if you turn the technologies of commons of commonsing uh, into a commons itself, which is what shareable is, you know, a <laughs> commons of commonsing. Um, you know, then you know, then we can all share in these ideas and really and and take equal contributions from what seem like other sides of the ideological spectrum, but they're actually in this thing with us. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we're in this incredibly uh, tumultuous political moment uh, filled with instability but also opportunity and we have this window of maybe three to you know five to ten years to get the commons solution onto uh, the platforms of parties and politicians as a path to take I think that time is getting more and more ripe for uptake of these things but you know they need a practical guide so this is you know there's other things that are needed too but this is a starting point and uh, just as we close here, I want to make sure people know the best way to get this book. I would think would be directly from go to shareable.net and order it there, right? Yeah, just go to shareable.net slash contribute. And in the left column of our page there, we're doing a crowdfunder, all the options of um, getting the book. Um, and you can get a free PDF. Just go to the bottom. There's an option for to get a free PDF as well. And everything's Creative Commons. I mean, you not only can like get a free book or or support us and get a book, which we would of course greatly appreciate, is you can take that book and create your own book or own project from the materials we have in the book. You know, from the all the content to the pictures to the cover, everything is going to be made. It's all Creative Commons for remixing and remaking. Cool. So if I if there's a week that I don't my guest doesn't show up, I can just like read a chapter from the book as my show. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. 
<laughs> cool. All right, we'll try that one. Excellent. With credit and attribution, of course. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, <laughs> that might sound like not such an exciting episode, but I, you know, I challenge you, I challenge the listeners to flip through this book and not come away with a sense of awe of what we can do together. It, it, this is why I do this, because every day I get these things coming across my desk and I go, holy crap, look what these people did against all the odds, right? Um, and against all the cultural narratives. They said, screw it, we're going to do this, and they do it. And that's what really keeps me going. Right. And I guess what we're finding out is, you know, the thing that happened, this this corporate capitalistic you know, corrupt nightmare is the thing that happened against the odds. And the odds are actually in the favor of uh, human beings working together uh, with common interests. <laughs> I know, right? It's an upside down world. And yeah, but there's a way to make it right side up. Yeah. And it's going to be fun. It's going to be fun to watch it flip. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and it should be fun. It should be the best party. You know, this is, I mean, this is our, part of our spirit too is like let's not proceed on this down this path in some grim fashion like let's let's have some fun with it you know yeah there's no reason not to it's not like being having fun while you work is somehow less effective yeah exactly exactly <laughs> right yeah yeah i mean yeah. and you know what is the old saying like the the movement with the best party wins you know the best dance party wins so so mm. let's have a great dance party all right i'll meet you there I'll meet you there <laughs> You've been listening to Team Human. Our guest today was Shareable.net's Neil Gorenflow, producer of the new book, Sharing Cities, Activating the Urban Commons. We'll be back in the basement media squad here at the Laboratory for Digital Humanism again next week with new strategies for human intervention in the machine. This show was produced and edited by Stephen Bartolome. Hello, Team Human listeners. This is Stephen here. Thanks for listening to another episode this week. If you enjoy the show and want to get more involved with other listeners, consider supporting us on Patreon. We're at patreon.com slash teamhuman. There you can subscribe at the membership level that feels right for you. Your subscription and support helps us to sustain this weekly show. We appreciate it. Thanks for listening. My name is Stephen Bartolome, and I'm on Team Human. And I'm Douglas Rushkoff. Team Human, our last best hope for peace. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.